0: For a season of my life, I worked for Her Majesty's Professional Development Foundation. My job was to grade doctoral work that was sent over here to me from London. One of the units I would grade was an introductory section called Getting to Know You. New students in the doctoral program were required to give an in-depth account of their life development. Uh, It was a great idea because through that, the student better understood himself and all of the influences on his life and his work. The only bad part of these units was the title, Getting to Know You, always made me start singing that earworm song from Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I. I would groan every time I would get a packet and I would open it up from London and it would have one of the Getting to Know You pieces because I knew I would be singing that song all day long. But the 60-page papers that were in there were always a joy to grade. And you won't hear me say that very often. I don't like grading. But these were a joy. First, It was fascinating getting to know all these different people from all over the the British Commonwealth. Secondly, I knew the work they did on this unit was going to really add depth to their dissertations that they would do later because they would better understand themselves and all of the forces shaping them. I bring that up because something very similar occurs in your Bible in Galatians chapter 1. If you would open your Bible to Galatians in your New Testament after Corinthians before Ephesians, go to Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians 1... The Apostle Paul walks us through four aspects of his life. He starts with Paul the prophet. He describes this aspect of his life in verses 11 and 12. Turn there, Galatians 1, and let's read God's Word in verses 11 and 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached by me is not based on human thought. For I did not receive it from a human source. And it was, I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation from Jesus Christ. Stop there. Paul the prophet, that's the headline you'll find in your notes. Open your bulletin up you got, look on the left-hand side, you'll see that headline. To understand the concept, we first need to review what biblical prophets did. In summary, prophets did two things, foretelling and what I call forthtelling. Foretelling, predicting the future, is the most recognized prophetic function. That's what most people picture when we think of a prophet. It's someone who received God's special revelation and then is telling what is going to occur at some point in the days to come. The other prophetic activity is forth telling, by which we mean speaking God's truth to a people who need to hear it. The prophets received God's revelation. and They applied that scripture to, to the lives of people in very pointed ways. Now, unlike what we tend to think, look at this. Did you know that forth telling is by far the major prophetic activity? Do you realize that? Over 70% of the prophets is concerned with applying Scripture to the lives of people in their current culture. And that prophetic work continued in the Apostle Paul. He, like any prophet of God, received revelation directly from the Holy Spirit. This is very important. Paul is speaking God's very words. And proving that becomes a major structural issue in the book. Look up here. Paul really enjoys employing a writing technique called a chiasm. That's your first fancy word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say chiasm. One, two, three. Chiasm. Very good. A chiasm works like this. You've got, you've got a big idea, uh, we'll call it idea A, that is followed in the writing by concept B. All right? Then it flips. Then concept B prime comes up. Now, that, that is either a restatement of the idea of concept B or it's an answer to a question that was raised in concept B. That's followed by A prime, which is either an answering to a question raised in A or a restating of A. And sometimes this has many, many levels. You'll have A, B, C, D, and on uh, with the the prime of of D, C, B, A. Sometimes there's a little standalone thought in the middle. When you see that, that's really important. That's the cream filling. That's the, the middle part of the Twinkie, and it's really special. But all these different types are called a chiasm, all right? A really brilliant German scholar... Uh, Named Joachim Jeremias wrote an absorbing study of all of the chiasms in Paul's letters Chiasmus in den Paulusbriefen examines all the times that Paul uses this writing technique where the thoughts are arranged in in inverse parallels Now look, look at this. Here's what he observed. What you just read, verse 11 That's a charge that Paul's gospel is according to mankind, right? That Paul's gospel, this good news he shares about Jesus, it's just a human construct. That's the idea in verse 11 Yeah, in verse 12, verse 12 is an accusation against Paul of receiving his revelation, not from God. He received his revelation from humans. He was just taught this stuff. Now look at what he observed about the rest of the book. The next part, verse 13 through chapter 2, it answers the accusation of verse 12. That section, when we get to it, you're going to see, it shows that Paul receives his revelation like any prophet from God, And then the rest of the book, chapter 3 through 6, silences the charge of verse 11. It shows the gospel is from Jesus, Messiah himself. It's not something humans made up. Isn't that cool? All right, here's, here's the bottom line. Paul is a prophet. That's what he's showing us through his structure. He received his truth from God as surely as any other biblical prophet ever did. He was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. He received his revelation straight from God. He is a prophet. Now, read verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, for you've heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree, tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Here we get to know Saul the persecutor. In the book of Acts, we have an in-depth report about the murder of the first Christian martyr, a Christian leader named Stephen. While the people were stoning Stephen, and this is a mural that represents this, uh, while they were stoning Stephen, a young man named Saul, Shaul in Hebrew, was set aside to guard everyone's belongings. This Saul will become our Apostle Paul, but I'm jumping ahead. The Greek text in Acts, look at it, it tells us this Saul was a naanias. Naonias is a specific word for somebody that's been groomed for leadership, so Saul, this turn, to the religious establishment in Jerusalem. He's more than just a coat guarder. He is a vital participant. He's doing an important service that is part of killing a Jew just for believing in Jesus the Messiah. Trying to describe this season of his life in Galatians 1, Paul uses the word traditions on purpose. You see that? Traditions. Now, traditions can be good. Traditions can be useful reminders of how to live out God's truth. However, you know this, don't you? They can become impediments They can become traditionalisms, if you will. Some of the traditions in Paul's life appear to be doing to him what they can do to you and to me, leading him astray. Think this through. When our traditions become traditionalisms, when they become unbiblical burdens, here's what you'll see. Watch for this. Here's what you'll see in your life. You'll find that your tradition can morph into an idol. It's something you worship. Hint, Christmas coming up. Sorry, it can be an idol, right? When your traditions become unbiblical burdens, they distort, corrupt, or even, and this does happen, they replace God's word. Your traditionalism is more important to you than God's very word. Third thing they can do is they become more important than showing God's love, mercy, and compassion. The apostles, the apostle's telling a story as an example. When he's telling the story, he wants me to think. He wants me to think about my own life and about our church. What are some traditions, good things, that are becoming unbiblical, burdensome traditionalisms. They need to be eliminated. Saul certainly moves away from God's love and mercy. Look, he even uses his authority to actively spread the persecution of Jesus' church. Armed with writs from the Jewish Religious Council, he pursued Christians. Get this, people fled the persecution in Jerusalem. He went after them. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, it's kind of cool, that's how they first described the church. Christians were first described as the way. found any who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. It was on one of those trips to arrest Christians that this Saul was struck by a blinding light, and he heard the voice of Messiah Jesus. Jesus called Saul proving to Saul his position as Messiah. And over the ensuing days, Saul trusted in Jesus. You know what happened? The former persecutor had become a Christian. Jesus then commissioned Saul as an apostle. He eventually sent him to the Gentiles, where he would go by his Roman name. Now, Paul is fascinating. He's not only a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's also a Roman of Romans. He is a proud Roman citizen, maybe the best Roman rhetorician ever to live. Uh, He had a Roman name. If you... If you're a Roman citizen, you had a Roman name. His Hebrew name was Shaul. His Roman name was Paulus. Among the Gentiles, he went by that name, Paulus. And thus, Saul has become Paul, who would be a very faithful and committed servant of Messiah Jesus, taking God's grace to everyone. Martin McDonald of our church pulpit team wrote me a great summary. He and I were dialoguing about this, and he wrote me this. He said, Wayne, Paul became a man who lived to please God regardless of the consequences. This resulted... In him casting off the yoke of tradition in favor of the robes of truth and grace. Isn't that nicely said? Musab Hassan Yosef lived a, has lived a very similar story. His father founded the Islamic terrorist group Hamas. And Musab was expected to follow in the family tradition. Instead, Musab became a believer in Messiah Jesus. God invaded his life. Uh, a British missionary in Israel introduced at great personal risk introduced Mossab to Christianity and in an amazing transformation this former killer of Jews and Christians became a follower of the Jewish Christ. Listen, I want to play you just a little bit of an interview with him. This is Mossab reflecting on this change in his life. Listen.
1: Uh, I've seen miracles if I can call them miracles in my life and I forget easily you know, sometimes I forget who I am. Sometimes I watch a uh, Fox News documentary again, and it's like, you know, I forget who is this guy. You like, <laughs> I forget who I am. And we as Christians, I'm sure that many times we forget who, who we are and what's our duty. God is working. Do you think, like, yes, we hear about wars, and he told us we shouldn't be surprised that there are wars and uh, disasters and all this stuff happening. This is a sign from him but in the middle east yes he is working and um, i was like uh, nobody can believe that the son of sheikh Hassan yusuf the one of the founders of muslim brotherhood and hamas will come to christ I, i i cannot believe it it's like a dream for me it's it's impossible
0: it's impossible And yet with God, all things are possible. All God's people said? God does this all the time. He takes the horrible traditionalist persecutor and he transformed him into into the the missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, get this now. The Lord wants us to know this is what he had in mind all along. Read the next section. Uh, Verse 15 and the first two-thirds of verse 16. But when God, who from my birth set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, So that I could preach him among the Gentiles. Stop there. This is Paul the predestined. By the way, that's the title atop the right side of our notes. Paul the predestined. Don't just sweep past these verses. They tell us four. These these verses tell us four very important things about Paul. Things that are also true for us. First, we learn that he is chosen. See that? Uh, The idea, God from my birth set me apart. I think Paul is being exceptionally clever here. In fact, he's rubbing the truth in his audience's noses. Um, Aphorizo is the Greek word that we translate set me apart. But look at where it comes from. Aphorizo has a long, interesting history. Originally, it was a Hebrew term, parus. okay? parus means, means dedicated or set apart. In the years before Messiah Jesus came, the language Aramaic became the major spoken tongue in the Near East. And and in Aramaic, a bunch of Jewish scholars, a bunch of very zealous people, took this word paris and they formed it into a different word, Pharisee. Pharisee was what they used to describe somebody who who is really serious about God, who has chosen to follow God. So then, the experts tell me this, Greek speaking and writing Judaizers, developed the term aphorizo from Pharisee. So this term, aphorizo, this is what Paul's legalistic opponents are using. This is their word in Galatia. But what they, the false teachers, mean is that people become holy through their own effort. They choose. They earn their justification before God. Paul turns their own word on his head. He says God chose him by grace. God set Paul apart through no effort of Paul's. He is now the antithesis of Pharisaism, and he's poking fun at them using their word. He's saying the only real setting apart in life is done by God. And Paul's also surely alluding to Jeremiah 1 here. Look, Jeremiah chapter 1 begins this way. The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Just like the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul is chosen. He's set aside by God who planned it before he was even born. And this same principle applies to every single believer in Jesus. Read with me. Paul's majestic comment, Ephesians chapter 1. You take the underlying text, please. Beautiful statement about you, about me. Listen to this. He chose us, in him means in Jesus. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just let that seep over your mind for a moment, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. Do you get that? It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter if you're confused these days and think you're something in between. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female, you have you have the Near East, this is very, very important in the culture in which this was written, you have the Mediterranean blessing of a son's inheritance. Isn't that cool? Doesn't no matter who you are, you're a son in your inheritance for God. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Amen. Like every Christian, Paul is chosen. Even more, he's called. Do you see that in the text? He is called for a specific work. Calling implies calling for work. Um, years ago, I was at a professional basketball game. I was the guest of this uh, pro team's general manager. Uh, he was a friend of mine. The team was in a major rebuilding mode. They were Okay, they were just pitiful. They were awful. It was just painful to watch them play basketball. They were really major rebuilding mode. I looked over at my buddy, the GM, at one point during the game, and this is a guy who's always smiling, just always a smiling, positive guy, and he looked like this. I mean, he was just, he was just all, so I didn't put his picture up. So I want to pick on I couldn't find a picture of him frowning, by the way. Uh, just, but he was just frowning. After the game, I got to be privy to a fascinating conversation. Um, We were down in the bowels underneath the stadium, private. There was just the head coach and the GM, and I was standing there waiting for my friend. And the GM said this to the head coach, and I quote, never forgot this. He said, I didn't choose that rookie in the draft for him to sit on the bench all night. Call his name and get him to work, close quote. Paul is called and put to work, and that's true for every one of you kids We were drafted by God so that we could serve. We're blessed in order to be a blessing. We are called by God's grace so that we can serve, so we can get to work. That's why we as a church put so much emphasis on helping every single person discover their shape for ministry. Every Christian has a shape for ministry. We use that as an acronym. S stands for your spiritual gifts. Particular spiritual gifts given to you by God. And yes, everyone has one. I'll never forget the young lady who came in my office crying. She'd been reading the scripture. She'd seen about these spiritual gifts. She came and said, Pastor right. Wade, I'm the only person who doesn't have one. She did. She did. And it wasn't just crying. She had other gifts besides that. <laughs> Everybody has one. Heart. You've got heart. There are things that make your heart beat. There are, there are ministries. There are people. There are things for which you you're wired. You enjoy these things, abilities. Everybody has abilities, natural talents. We all have them, even non-Christians, natural abilities. God expects us to use for him. P, you have a personality. You know, you're not the only person that one of those either. And E is experiences, right? God expects us to use our particular wonderful shape to fill the needs in his church. In fact, get this. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that our gifts are given for one reason. You know what the main reason for our gifts? It's not us. It's to build up God's church. That's why I've been given my gift, so it will build up God's church. Paul is called to preach to Gentiles. I I was called to to lead and teach Christians. Uh, Missy was called to shepherd young people, right? Tom was called to develop people, especially men, and love on their families. What about you? To what are you called To plug in according to your shape, I suggest you follow these steps. This is pretty simple, but but you can get lost in it. So get your phone out right now. Just take a picture of the slide. I watch you. You do this all the time. Take a picture of the slide, and and if you don't have a camera phone with you, you can get them online Monday. They're always posted up. Here's what you do. Go to FriscoBible.com. Click the Opportunities tab, okay? When you click the Opportunities tab, there's a couple of choices. You want to go to Serve Others, and then there's a couple of choices. You go to Within the Church, all right? And then you click Begin Shape. that's going to take you through a, a, a fairly brief inventory that will help you determine how has God wired you to serve? How has He crafted you? If you're part of Frisco Bible Church, I just want you to know what will happen. That will then go to one of our staff who will contact you and talk to you about the different places that your shape could be used in the church. If this is not your church, that's great. Just get us word, call or write the church, and we will send your shape profile to wherever you go to church so that you can serve there. Meeting Paul, we find out he's predestined and we learn a lot about ourselves as well. He's chosen, he's called, and then he glorifies God by revealing Jesus. Look at that, verse 16. The core of who he is, what he says, what he does. The apostle Paul divulges Jesus. Jesus is revealed in what Paul says and does. Verse 16, uh, look at it again. To reveal his son in me so I could preach him among the Gentiles. That kind of living and speaking takes us to the very final thought in our passage. Look at the very final thought in our section here, verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Paul's life brings glory to God. Now you tell me, is that not a convicting and motivating statement? Just think of the things you have said and done. Think about your own life. Over the past few days, the the things you have said and done in the past few days, what has your living divulged? What has it revealed? No doubt, we brought a lot of glory to a lot of sports teams, right? It's the weekend in America. That's what we do. We cheered and we cried and we brought glory to sports teams. We likely revealed many, many people. It's amazing how much more people are drinking these days than they were even 10 years ago. Many of you probably in how you lived and what you said revealed a deep love for alcohol or or for soft drinks or for mirrors or for selfies Our outward comments almost certainly revealed inwardly that we are consumed with politics, right? And while most of that stuff is fine, and some of it's even important, it all pales in comparison with the most important thing, to bring glory to God by revealing Jesus in everything we do. That was Paul's calling He glorified God by revealing Jesus. It's to be ours as well. 350 years ago, the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote on this. This is from his book, uh, Heaven Taken by Storm. Look at this. He says, there are four things that glorify God. And he again gave the four. Appreciation, to set God, and these are his words, to set God highest in our thoughts and have a venerable esteem of him. Uh, You see that in Psalm 97, for example. Second way to glorify God, adoration. Adoration. Giving God the worship due his royal prerogative. Isn't that nicely said? I like that. The worship due his royal prerogative, uh, Psalm 29. Affection, loving God. It's a third way, Watson said, that we give glory to God. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And subjection, being dedicated to God, dressed, ready to serve him anytime at a moment's notice as David was in 1 Samuel 17, all right? Now, look at that. That's not scripture. That's just a preacher, but i chewed on that a little bit. And I think he has put together a pretty nice summary of biblical truth. However, based on what you and I are learning today in Galatians 1, I'd like to add just one more idea. This is based on Paul's life. So here's my amendation of Thomas Watson. There are four, nay, five things that glorify God. Appreciation, setting God highest in our thoughts, have venerable esteem of Him. Adoration, giving God the worship that is due His royal prerogative. Three, affection, loving God. Four, subjection, being dedicated to God, dressed and ready to serve. And five, we glorify God through revelation, by living outwardly who we are. Somebody that is changed by Jesus' salvation. We're getting to know Paul. We see his life as a prophet, as a persecutor, as a person predestined to God's service. Speaking of service, let's meet Paul, the prepared preacher. Uh, pick up where we left in verse 16 through the end of this section. I did not immediately consult with anyone. This is after he became a believer in Christ. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, I'm not lying in what I write to you. God is my witness. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches in Christ. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he was tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So much of interest here. Let's just examine two big ideas. First, look at this. Did you notice? He studies more than mere human tradition. After Paul converted to trust in Jesus, he wisely avoided becoming part of some religious movement. Instead, he spent time alone with God and with the Scriptures. He studied. He spent time getting to know the Messiah without being influenced by mere human traditionalism. Specifically, look at the map. Paul went to Arabia, the home of the Nabataean kingdom at that time. There he could study the Scriptures outside of his traditions. Now listen, I told you about Paul's traditions. He has a great Hebrew tradition. He also has a great Greco-Roman tradition, each of them are fine, but he is escaping those to make sure he can study away from those schools. And during this three years of independent study, Paul was, he was living out who he was. He probably, he probably was preaching even then. Certainly, he was stirring up trouble. In fact, it appears the Arabian leadership became very angry with Paul. Look, look what he writes, Second Corinthians chapter 11. In Damascus, when he went back up to Damascus in Syria, in Damascus, the governor under King Arethas guarded the city of the Damascenes in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through the window on the wall and escaped his hands. Arabia, Aretas was the Nabataean king in Arabia. Aretas IV was this one's name. Um, He had his men hunt the apostle Paul all the way back up to Syria. They guarded the gates of Damascus in an attempt to try and catch and kill him there. Thankfully, Paul escaped. And that story, this is so cool. Think literarily, okay? That story becomes a sort of vehicle, a a metaphor, if you will, to display the tenor of Paul's life after his conversion to Jesus. Think about it. Think. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained in the traditionalism of the Pharisees, trained by the famous Rabbi Gamaliel himself. Paul was a graduate of what we would call Tarsus University in in the city of Tarsus in Cilicia. He was steeped in the secular philosophies of the greatest Greek thinkers. He was a proud citizen of Rome, trained to argue in the best Roman rhetorical tradition. But you know what he saw? He saw all of that could be a trap. His great learning needed to be unlearned. He had to escape all of that. He needed to escape so that he could make sure he understood and followed Jesus alone. That's why he ran away to Arabia and to Syria. Now later, listen, Later, he would use all of his background and his education, right? He would take all that stuff captive to better serve Jesus. He would eventually revisit his Roman province of Cilicia. He tells us that. He would eventually go back to his second home in Jerusalem where he studied under Gamaliel. But first, he had to know only the scriptures and nothing else. A few years ago, I got to know another man in somewhat similar circumstances. This guy had swung through wildly divergent religious traditions and experiences. He'd even been a pastor for a while. Eventually, he decided he, just, he had to get away from all that and get alone only with the Lord and His Word. So you know what this guy did? He spent months reading only the Bible and taking notes and unlearning a great deal of his past. He, he began to build a new biblical theology that stripped away a lot of the religiosity and the human traditionalism. He even ended up worshiping here. He was attracted here because we had Bible in our name. He checked out the place online, then he began to visit, eventually he met with me, over time he became my friend, my very good friend, and I have been richly blessed by him and his Apostle Paul-like journey. Speaking of which, that's the second aspect of Paul, the prepared preacher. He made wise friends, he made wise partnerships. When he did meet with Christian leaders, he had an audience with Peter and James. Peter was often called Kephas, or Cephas, we would say, Uh, that's Greek for head. Uh, Poor man had more nicknames. Uh, and, And James, James is the half-brother of Jesus. These would prove to be two very talented, respected, influential leaders in the first century churches. Now, get Paul's tone here. He didn't hold these men as higher than God. He didn't. He, he allowed them to engage with his thinking. They were helpful. They were wise connections for the last apostle, but he was not beholden to them. Seeing this kind of wise connection is one of the things I enjoy most about a typical men's retreat. Happens nearly every ministry that I go to it happened last weekend at Mancap for this church. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down, I'm um, working on something, and some guy comes and he plops down next to me and he says, Hey, I want to ask you about something. And it's so cool. As the guy reveals his question, it's something about that environment. This happens all the time. It becomes clear that he doesn't really need me. He doesn't need, he's already thought it through with the Lord and his scripture. He's just curious what my take is on it so that he can sharpen his thinking a little bit. It's really encouraging, it's healthy. That's Paul with Peter and James. He doesn't need them, but he goes and meets with them and appreciates their input. That's the context in which Paul starts sharing Jesus' good news, and that causes people to glorify the Lord. Thus, verses 16 through 24 bring up a major theme throughout the Bible. I hope you catch this theme. If you focus on pleasing God, people will end up blessed as well. If you are concerned with human approval, neither God nor people will be edified. Period. We mustn't settle for anything less than people glorifying God because of us. For that to happen, you and I must major on pleasing God, not ever people. In his book on Galatians, Warren Wiersbe tells this story. He says, when Verdi produced his first opera in Florence, the composer stood by himself in the shadows and kept his eye on the face of one man in the audience, the great Rossini. It mattered not to Verdi whether the people in the hall were cheering him or jeering him. All he wanted was the smile of approval from the master musician himself. Wearsby goes on, so it was with Paul. He knew what it was to suffer for the gospel, but the approval or disapproval of men did not move him. And here he quotes 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him, to God. Paul wanted the approval of Christ. Close quote. So with all that in mind, let me ask you a question. If some professor were to receive our getting to know you assignment, yours or mine, what would he or she learn about us? Would he learn that we were concerned primarily with glorifying God? That, that, that we made wise partnerships? That we studied, oh please, we studied beyond the mere traditionalism of our age? Is that what they'd learn? Or, or think, think of this. Do faraway Christians glorify God because of us? What do you and I do that would even make our far-off brethren praise God? With those convicting questions ringing in our ears, let's pray. Pray with me, please. Lord... Lord, I specifically pray that every Christian studying this passage would engage in ministry according to the shape you've given them. They were called according to a purpose. Help them serve. Lord, I pray every one of us would make wise, sharpening partnerships with other Christians. Father, I pray we would study your words, your words as primary, not just the traditionalisms of people. And God, most of all, I pray we glorify you, that we glorify you through appreciation making you number one in our thoughts all the time, that we glorify you in adoration, giving you the worship that is due the royal prerogative, that we glorify you through affection, loving you, through subjection, being dedicated to you, dressed, ready to serve. Lord, thanks for the offering we're about to take. This may be the best test of my subjection, period. (laughs) I can say that I'm subject to you and I really want everything to be about you as primary And then I look at my checkbook and see how very, very little of your money I give to your work. It's very convicting. I pray that I will give robustly, and so will my brethren in subjection. And Lord, finally, revelation. I present this request, Father, that every Christian studying with me will live outwardly as someone who has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they will live out who they are, inheritors of your salvation. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, amen.